won't say too much, first of all because uh, my voice is going away, <laughs> and also because really Professor Costanza doesn't need much introduction. You all know him, and we're so very pleased that he's with us tonight. Just want to say that he's University Professor of Sustainability and Director of the Institute for Sustainable Solutions at Portland State University. He received a BA and an MA in <coughs> degrees in architecture and a PhD in environmental engineering sciences from the University of Florida. So he's this extraordinary, wide-ranging, interdisciplinary person that we need in the world today. He's the author or co-author of over 400 scientific papers and 22 books. And most of you know, I'm sure, his 1997 article, <coughs> which really created a whole field of thinking, the value of the world's ecosystem services and natural capital that was published in Nature, um, number 387. But moving, before moving to his new position, he was the Goon Professor of Ecological Economics and the founding director of the Goon Institute for Ecological Economics at the University of Vermont, where he is still a research fellow. And he is a senior fellow in many other institutes, and I'm not going to name all of them, he has honorary degrees of many other places and maybe hopefully one day from here too. And <laughs> he's arguably, of course, best known for having co-founded and edited for so long the Journal of Ecological Economics. And please, Bob, um, the word is to you now. <laughs> okay. <coughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, Laura. And it's a pleasure to be um, back here at uh, the Native College. I guess I... I gave a, a lecture here once uh, back in 2001. Anybody here listen, hear that lecture, 2001? Okay, so there might be a little bit of overlap. <laughs> <laughs> not, too, not too many. So um, what I want to talk about um, tonight is solutions. How do, we, how do we solve the dilemma that we're, we're facing uh, today in this um, in this now full world, a world that's now full of humans and their artifacts. Uh, so we're, we're in a very different situation. Uh, what Paul Crutzen has called the, uh, a whole new geologic era, the, uh, the Anthropocene, where humans and their, and their uh, artifacts are really uh, having such a large influence on, on the, uh, the functioning of our ecological life support system that we have to start thinking, I think, very differently. <clears throat> uh, this is not a world that we've, we've ever seen before. Uh, in history. And I think we have to start thinking about, uh, specifically about solutions, uh, not just how, okay, come on, there. <laughs> it's not just about the problems, but how do we actually solve some of these problems? So um, one thing I'm involved with now is a new hybrid journal, uh, academic journal, and popular magazine called Solutions. I brought several copies along, and I'll pass these around. Make sure you get them back at the end. And of course you can uh, <coughs> subscribe, you can view all the content for free online. Um, and you can see we have quite a, a, uh, an interesting editorial board. In fact, um, the managing editor is here with me tonight, Ida Kubushevsky. Raise your hand. <laughs> so if you have some ideas for things that you might want to contribute uh, to, this, to this journal, please uh, talk to Ida <coughs> uh, or send them in uh, by email. So 
Um, but what does it mean? What, how do we actually solve uh, some of these complicated problems that we're facing? And, uh, I will <coughs> argue that we need at least these three basic elements and the integration of these three basic elements of having an adequate vision, not only of how the world works, our scientific um, paradigms and, and theories, but also of how we would like the world to be. What's our, our vision for the future? What are our, our goals? Can we build a more uh, coherent, shared vision of the future? And that our tools and analytical techniques and our implementation strategies and institutions um, have to be consistent with that, uh, that, that vision. And certainly, our vision of how the world works um, has been changing quite, quite dramatically with new developments in the life sciences and in psychology, the, the sort of science of happiness uh, that's been emerging, etc. <clears throat> of course, you all were wondering what sustainability science was. Well, here's the answer. <laughs> it's from a recent paper that looks at the sort of citation networks among different uh, different fields, and you can see that it's it's really a, a very integrated and very interdisciplinary uh, kind of approach. You know, how do you put together urban planning and energy analysis and ecological economics plays a, a very central role, I think, in all of this: forestry and health and wildlife, tourism, etc. So I think our challenge. <coughs> is developing a more integrated, more transdisciplinary approach to science that can look at the whole system and uh, how these complex problems and their, and their solutions uh, come about. Um, we know from this that um, uh, this system that we live in is, is subject uh, to very sometimes nonlinear behavior, uh, tipping elements or tipping points in the system. This is from a paper by Tim Lenton recently <coughs> that identified several potential tipping elements in the climate system. Uh, probably the best known are the, uh, the melting of the ice sheets and several other potential tipping points that you can see here. Changes in Enzo and the dieback of the Amazon rainforest. All of these things could potentially cause quite dramatic and unexpected changes in the, in the climate system. Um, <coughs> so how do we deal with those? I was in, involved with a, a large number of other uh, scientists in, in uh, this idea of identifying the planetary boundaries. What's the safe operating space within our uh, ecological life support system? <coughs> we identified these, these nine areas. Um, and the, uh, the Earth here is the, the safe operating space. And you can see that climate change, biodiversity, and, uh, and the nitrogen cycle are all already well outside of that, what we identified as the safe operating space. But we're not so close to the potential thresholds. And of course, we don't know where those thresholds are, uh, but we know that they, they uh, potentially exist. And to be safe, we have to stay well within those the guardrails, as you might, you might think of. Um, <clears throat> certainly, climate change is the best studied of these. Biodiversity loss is also fairly well studied. And some of the others um, are, are beginning to be uh, to be well known, ocean acidification, for example, uh, changes in land use and freshwater use, etc. So, how do we <coughs> design to solve this problem? How do we stay within uh, the uh, the planetary boundaries and still have a prosperous and uh, and desirable future? We also know that we're approaching, if we haven't already passed, the the peak in global oil production, uh, which which has fueled. <coughs> a lot of the recent uh, and rapid uh, development, <coughs> human development on the planet. And it's probably not even that rosy of a picture because 
we know that the net energy from uh, these future uh, extractions will, will go down quite, quite rapidly. We have to move further and further offshore. It's much more expensive uh, to, um, uh, to find and extract those new oil and gas reserves. <coughs> uh, so that's going to have a, a huge impact. Of course, that's not the story that people, or the movie that people want, want to see. So they, they would rather be told a, a reassuring lie than, than uh, to face the inconvenient truth of our pending uh, planetary boundaries and, and uh, <coughs> um, peak oil. Of course, <coughs> others take a more uh, adaptionist approach to this problem. This is an actual ad from, for diesel clothes. I don't know if you've seen this one around. And I don't know if this would induce you to buy those clothes or not, but this is their, their global warming ready <coughs> line. <of clothes. laughs> so you can be, you know, you can prepare yourself for these things. And this is Manhattan in the background. I'm not sure if you recognize that, but this is, you know, that's the Empire State Building. I guess it's up to about the 80th, the water level's up to about the 80th floor. <coughs> you know, who would buy diesel diesel jeans on the basis of this? I don't know exactly what they were thinking, but it's kind of an interesting approach. Um, there are, however, you know, some the the mainstream media, uh, some in the mainstream media, who are, I think, beginning to get get the message. This is from a, an op-ed by Thomas Friedman <coughs> um, several years ago now, two years ago. Now he's asking, well, what if this crisis? in 2008, which we're still in, you know, this, we're still, how many years later is it now? Uh, <clears throat> what if it's something more fundamental than just another deep recession? What if it's telling us that, you know, we're, uh, what we're doing and what we have been doing over the last 50 years is just fundamentally unsustainable, uh, both economically and environmentally? Um, <clears throat> and I think it's also important to take a much broader view, a much longer view of our, uh, of our history as a species. So this is um, <coughs> a project that I've been involved with, um, with John Deering here and, uh, and several others around, around the world on trying to build a more integrated history and future of, of people on Earth. So how can we um, put together our, what we are, are learning about our environmental history with what we know about our uh, human history? And this, this is kind of a complicated graph, but Kind of interesting. So, on a log scale, starting hundred thousand years ago, going up to the to the present, and just putting together some of the um, technological changes you know, the, uh, from the domestication of dogs all the way up to Google, sort of the pinnacle of technological um, advancement. And over here are the different uh, civilizations that have come and gone. Stuff in the middle is more the some of the environmental variables, and particularly the red the red line here is the um, temperature record going back 100,000 years ago. And, you know, during the, the beginning of, of uh, Homo sapiens as a species, which is roughly 250,000 years or so, um, the climate was quite quite erratic, um, you know, going through ice ages and interglacial periods. And it wasn't until the beginning of the Holocene here, about 10,000 years ago, that things stabilized quite dramatically. And so human civilization, as we know it, these sedentary developments in agriculture um, really depended on that stabilization of, of climate. You can see things started growing exponentially since then, with some ups and downs and things like the Little Ice Age and the, <coughs> the, uh, the uh, Roman climate optimum, as it's called. Um, 
and things like the Great Acceleration, which uh, started about 50 years ago, at the end of World War II, where you can see some real kinks in those curves. They started to grow even faster than exponentially, largely driven by that consumption of uh, fossil fuels and, and in particular uh, oil and gas. So <coughs> what can we learn from the history of human-environment interactions uh, that we can use to build a better future? And in particular, in this new full world context that we're in, um, what do we mean by the, the economy? And what is the economy really for? And most people, when you say the economy, they think the market and all of the things that are produced and consumed in the market. But I think in this, things have really changed. <clears throat> and we now have to think more basically about uh, you know, human well-being as being the goal for the economy. Uh, and, uh, <clears throat> and, and what does that entail? Uh, what are all the things that contribute to human well-being? And certainly there are lots of things that are outside the market uh, that contribute heavily to human well-being. We have to sort of bring that broader understanding, I think, into the picture in this new context. The <coughs> empty world model of the economy that was developed during that great acceleration period uh, looks something like this. You have land, labor, and capital, primary factors of production. And you can see that land is kind of grayed out because... There's an assumption of almost perfect substitutability between land and other factors. You don't really need natural resources. Uh, you can substitute more labor or manufactured capital, keep you know, the economy going, producing goods and services that are then either consumed in the current period or reinvested to build more capital so you can produce and consume more in the, in the future period. So the basic premises here is that more is always better, all, all else being equal. You like to have more consumption. This economy can grow forever. There's nothing in this picture that would sort of limit the size of the economy, just keep in increasing in size. So economic growth is the, the goal. Um, poverty can best be solved with more growth. There's sort of a trickle-down theory. If you have a bigger pie, then it's easier to, to share that among everyone. And that nature is kind of a sideshow. You don't really need natural resources. And private property is always the best way to, to, um, uh, to allocate ownership over these resources because you're talking about private goods and services that are produced in markets. So <clears throat> what's the problem there? Or how do we need to think differently in this new full world context? First of all, we have to recognize that the economy is embedded in society, and it's which is embedded in nature. And we live on a finite planet. And it's, uh, you know, it's insane to think that we could increase material production and consumption you know, indefinitely, exponentially on a finite planet. We have to recognize that uh, these four basic types of capital are not infinitely substitutable. They, uh, they're all required in some sort of balanced way to produce any sort of economic goods and services and any sort of human benefits uh, at all. And they include our traditional manufactured capital, human capital, uh, individual people, and their, their labor, but also their information uh, stored in their brains, their, their health of individuals, but also their social capital, all of the interactions uh, between people, all of their you know, sort of uh, formal and informal networks and institutions. And finally, our natural capital assets, uh, all the rest of the world uh, that <coughs> contribute uh, and are required to produce goods and services, but also contribute directly human well-being. And human well-being is a much more complex uh, interaction than simply the more we consume, the better off we are. Certainly that consumption contributes, uh, but it, it, it sort of saturates. And we have uh, many other 
uh, inputs, like our social and our natural capital. Outside the market, but, but uh, very important to uh, producing a high quality of life and happiness and human well-being. So um, <clears throat> we held a workshop with a bunch of different people from a whole range of disciplines to try to figure out you know, what do we really mean by quality of life uh, or well-being. And uh, this is the diagram that we came up with. That it's this interaction between <clears throat> what's called subjective well-being. You can go out and survey people and ask them, you know, how happy are they, how satisfied are they with, with their life. And there's been a lot of work done doing that around the world. Um, and this idea of a basic set of human needs that uh, Manfred Maddox needs and, and uh, several other people have come up with. That we, you know, we, we have needs for subsistence and reproduction and consumption, but we also have uh, needs for security and affection and understanding and participation, you know, leisure, creativity, etc. Um, and there's different weightings that people, individuals and cultures give to how well uh, uh, those needs are, are satisfied and how much subjective well-being they, they produce. And what we can do is provide the opportunities for people to meet those needs and feel the sense of subjective well-being by how we arrange all of our assets, our social, our, our human, our natural, our built capital, and how we use our time. So it's really the, this complex interaction among um, all of those in elements that lead to a high quality of life that is also uh, sustainable. And that should be, as I said, our goal for the, for the economy and for society. To give you a little more um, data behind this, uh, we know from several other studies that um, you know, if you plot GNP per capita on this axis and, and uh, well-being uh, on this axis, subjective well-being, you get a, a uh, saturation kind of curve. So beyond a certain point, more consumption, more GNP is not really improving um, happiness or well-being uh, that much. Um, so. Uh, you know, on the other hand, in some of these uh, countries, they, they really need some additional uh, consumption and well-being. So we should really be thinking more about you know, this sort of circle in the middle of uh, where's the point where everyone has uh, enough and that additional consumption, which has significant negative uh, side effects on the environment, et cetera, uh, and on social capital. Uh, <clears throat> you know, this is sort of the obese economy on this side of the sort of starving economy in this stuff. How do we create a system where, uh, where everyone uh, has enough? And this idea of contraction on, some, on, the, on the high end and, and convergence toward this, this uh, circle is, is, uh, is more the, the idea. So <clears throat> how do we, however, measure uh, progress in well-being in, in our economies these days? I mean, we, we, uh, we hear about GDP and uh, the growth of the growth of the economy, and you know, if the economy is not growing, we're in a recession. Everybody's really upset. Well, you know, GDP was never designed as a measure of of national uh, well-being, and it's really only a measure of economic income or activity, and it's really only a measure of the marketed component of that of that activity. Uh, so, you know, if there if there's an oil spill, somebody has to go and clean it up. That means that GDP is going to increase. If there's more crime, if there's more uh, pollution and, and health costs, uh, all of that can lead to increases in GDP. So it's not really what we want to be measuring as an index of, of well-being for, for an economy. It's just it's more of a measure of, of cost. 
what should we be measuring? Well, some alternatives. Uh, in fact, there's a lot of um, interest <coughs> these days in, in creating alternatives to GDP. I think there's growing recognition that this is not the right thing to be, to be monitoring. Um, <clears throat> but you could instead measure something called economic welfare, where you try to subtract out the negatives and add on things that are left out. And this index of sustainable economic welfare or the genuine progress indicators, another version of that. I'll talk a little bit more about that is one alternative that gives you some very different answers. Uh, but ultimately, we would really like to be measuring uh, human welfare and human needs assessment or fulfillment. And uh, you know, we should try to fulfill those needs with as little consumption and production as possible. GDP might be better in the, in the denominator rather than in the numerator. You doing OK? <laughs> so <laughs> just as an example, and uh, I'm not saying this is the perfect indicator, but this genuine progress indicator starts with personal consumption expenditures, which is a major component of GDP, so it still has that you know, consumption basis. But then it weights them by income distribution because it's clear that you know, there is this saturation curve and the um, dollar's worth of additional income doesn't produce as much welfare for a rich person as it does for a poor person. Uh, it then adds a few things in that are left out of GDP, like the value of household labor and volunteer work, and then it subtracts a bunch of things that, that really should be considered negatives rather than positives. The cost of crime. Nobody wants more crime. Anybody here want more crime? I guess if you're, you know, if you're in the security business, you might want more crime. But in general, no. We don't want more family breakdown. We don't want more underemployment. You know, we don't want more water, air, noise pollution, you know, loss of wetlands, etc. So these are all bad things <coughs> that, you should, that should be subtracted. When you apply this measure um, for several countries around, around the world that it's being done for, you get these sorts of results, uh, where GDP is the blue line and ICW or, or uh, GPI is the, uh, is the red line. And uh, <coughs> let's see, we focus on the UK here. It's very similar to the pattern in the US where uh, you know, for a while in the post-war period, there was a very strong correlation between the two because we really did, did need, that really was the limiting factor in producing additional well-being. But beyond that, all of the negative side effects and uh, the impacts on the natural and social capital assets began to overwhelm the increasing benefits. And we've been in a period of what Herman Daly has called uneconomic growth. Uh, growing, but welfare <coughs> by ICW is not really improving. It's just a blow up of the plot. For the US, you could say that you know, ever since 1975, the United States has been in a recession, in a quality of life, in a progress recession, as opposed to a, you know, a consumption and production um, recession. Not true everywhere in the country. We did a study in uh, Vermont <coughs> that showed that even though the national GPI was leveling off and declining, you know, in Vermont things were still, uh, still improving, largely because of their better uh, attention to their natural capital assets and their social capital assets. Um, the state of Maryland has recently adopted the GPI. I think it's the first uh, government body that's <coughs> officially adopted this particular measure of progress as one of their official state statistics and what they're, uh, they're <coughs> using to, uh, uh, to guide uh, their, uh, their policies. So um, the bottom line in all of this is that this continued growth in material consumption, at least at the global scale, is not really sustainable. We're bumping up into these 
planetary boundaries. And it's not necessarily improving happiness and well-being. Uh, at least not the pattern of, uh, of growth that we've, that we've seen and not the, the way that it's been distributed. And the way that it's distributed, I think, is, is, is probably um, a more important factor these days than just increasing uh, GDP overall. And if you've seen this recent book by um, Wilson's, Wilkinson and Pickett called The Spirit Level, uh, and in which they collect data around, uh, well, at least in this case for OECD countries, <coughs> um, income equality and this whole range of social problems show a very strong uh, relationship uh, between countries that are more unequal in their income distribution also have a whole range of, of uh, social problems that are, that are much more severe. <coughs> so there's a very strong connection <coughs> excuse me, between um, income equality, distribution of wealth, and, uh, and how societies function, and, and, uh, and, and ultimately the quality of life and, and well-being and happiness of the population. <coughs> in the U.S. in particular, you notice the U.S. was way up in the upper right uh, part of this curve. Uh, things have been getting really um, maldistributed. And uh, this is an interesting plot which shows the actual distribution of wealth in the U.S. today. <coughs> this is what Americans think the distribution of wealth is. They think it's a lot more equal than it is. And this is what they would like it to be. It's way different than what it, than what it really is. Um, <coughs> and of course, there's been recent data showing that, that most of that growth in GDP that we were talking about was really not being well distributed. It was all going to the top almost all going to the top one uh, and over 20% of the, uh, of the population. And that, I think, is part of the reason why the genuine progress you know, has, has not been improving at the same rate that the, uh, that the GDP has. And uh, <coughs> Wilkinson and Pickett make the point, too, that this is bad not only for the people at the bottom of the income distribution, but also for people at the top because they're having to work harder to keep up with the Joneses. Of course, in their case, the Joneses are CEOs, and uh, you know, they have to make more than their, their peer CEOs in order to, to feel the sense of, uh, of well-being. And that has all these negative side effects. <clears throat> it has negative side effects on our social capital, on our ability to, to, uh, to trust um, our, our neighbors, to build social relationships and social institutions. That's been... Uh, a very important area of research these days. How do we build social capital? How do we understand its contribution <clears throat> to our, our well-being? So, and uh, it also affects our natural capital our, uh, and the ecosystem services that our natural capital produces. Uh, so I'm assuming that, that everyone's familiar now with this term ecosystem services. Anybody here never heard the term ecosystem services before? One person, okay. <laughs> Two. <laughs> yes. Pardon? <laughs> well, it's quick enough to... Okay. So they're you know, defined as the benefits that people derive from functioning ecosystems. There's a, a list, um, you know, things at the global scale, like regulating the climate and supplying water and forming soils, like nutrients, etc. This is the list that we came up from the in the, the paper that, that, uh, that Laura mentioned back in 1997. More recently, the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment <coughs> um, <coughs> sort of lumped those uh, services into these four basic categories of provisioning, regulating, 
cultural and, and supporting services, and they're all important in terms of supporting various aspects of, uh, of human well-being, uh, listed on the right, health, social relationships, and et cetera. <clears throat> they, um, they come from various parts of our landscape, various, uh, various of the uh, ecosystems out there, from, from forests, from, from uh, cultivated land, from inland waters, and, and uh, you know, the whole range of, of uh, natural ecosystems. Uh, contribute to ecosystem services. <clears throat> One of the issues of solutions that are, are being passed around is a special issue on ecosystem services that we, that we recently did, so you can find a lot more information in there. <clears throat> a paper that Laura mentioned in 1997, we tried to estimate the, the total value of all of these services, the total contribution to human well-being, um, <clears throat> and came up with an admittedly rough estimate of um, 16 to 54 trillion dollars per year, significantly larger <coughs> than global. I think I'm getting <laughs> lost some voice. <coughs> larger than global GDP at the time. Um, <coughs> unfortunately, we didn't have control over what nature put on the cover, and they they named it, uh, you know, pricing the planet. And we were talking really about valuing the planet. And I think that's one of the major confusions that's that's emerged. You're not by <coughs> By trying to evaluate these services and and, uh, and and state them in monetary terms, you're not you're not saying that they uh, should be exchanged in markets. You're not saying that they're uh, commodities that that, uh, that should be exchanged. You're saying that they are valuable contributors to, to well-being. And here's a way of of calibrating and understanding that relative contribution compared to other things that that also uh, contribute. So. Uh, <clears throat> we're not really trying to price them as if they were going to be sold in markets, but really to value them as public goods, as things that, that contribute to the, uh, to the common good. There were, if you, uh, if you go back and read that paper, the largest section was the section about the caveats and problems and limitations, and we listed these 12 um, problems. Uh, but we recognize that solving almost, any, almost all of them would... Um, no doubt lead to even larger uh, numbers than the ones we came up with. So it's very much a conservative um, underestimate of the contribution of these services to human well-being. And I think recent research since then has, uh, has borne that out, that the more we learn <coughs> about the contribution of ecosystem services to our well-being, uh, the larger we, we, uh, we, we estimate that contribution to be. Just some basic facts about ecosystem services <coughs> that... Another thing we should re re, um, remember is that they only make that contribution to human well-being in combination with the other three forms of capital that, that I mentioned. Uh, so it's not something that's happening independently. And to understand them, you have to understand how that whole system functions. It's not just an environmental thing. It's something that requires you to understand the whole system. Um, <clears throat> that they represent a significant contribution, that they're uh, they're being threatened and degraded. That they're, uh, you know, that they uh, is a, they represent a way for us to understand the trade-offs between uh, these uh, in, in ecological and socio-economic systems. And finally, that they're um, they most of them or many of them cannot or should not be privately owned. They're, these are not uh, private goods and services. They're they're more. Uh, in the order of public goods, and we need different kinds of institutions to manage them. <clears throat> what does that mean? Well, one way of looking at this is the 
distinction between uh, goods that are rival versus non-rival. So a rival good is one whose, you know, if, if I benefit uh, from consuming that good, other people can't can not also benefit. Uh, so uh, non-rival goods are the are the opposite. Multiple people can benefit from uh, from the same good or service. Excludable versus non-excludable. So this is how difficult is it to keep people from benefiting? You know, until they until they paid you for them. Uh, market goods and services largely fit well into this category of rival and excludable goods and services. And there's certainly lots of things that you know fit that that categorization. And that's where markets can really do a good job of uh, of handling the allocation. But <clears throat> for these other three uh, boxes, markets are not so good as an institution. So we need something different uh, institutionally to handle public goods and common pool resources. And there's a whole range of different kinds of institutions that I'll mention in a bit that, uh, that might do a better job. Um, so this whole idea of ecosystem services, I think, is really uh, beginning to ca catch on. Um, even the president of the World Bank, you know, they've started a, uh, a new uh, <clears throat> office, uh, the Global Partnership for Ecosystems and Ecosystem Services Valuation and Wealth Accounting. There's the uh, IPBES, Intergovernmental Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, that's just being formed, something parallel to the, uh, uh, the IPCC uh, to study these problems. Um, I've been involved recently in starting this thing called the Ecosystem Services Partnership, uh, which is an attempt to, to get all of the literally thousands of individuals and groups around the world now working on this uh, to, to do it a little more collaboratively, to sort of communicate with each other. Um, we've had a series of conferences, and I'll just point out that uh, the next conference is going to be in Portland, Oregon. So if you all would uh, would like to come and see beautiful Portland, this is what it looks like. Uh, <laughs> on uh, <coughs> July, the end of July, beginning of August uh, 2012, uh, go, to the, go to this website and, uh, and see what we're planning. So... <clears throat> um, I think there's been growing interest in, in several different levels of government in this idea of ecosystem services. We did a study for the state of New Jersey recently on uh, trying to estimate their ecosystem services. Uh, there's been work on Puget Sound and uh, the Mississippi uh, uh, Delta uh, that's, <clears throat> that's looked at uh, some of those values and, and come up with numbers that are quite, um, quite large and quite uh, attention-getting. I think that's part of the, the reason for doing these kinds of studies is just to, to uh, point out and raise awareness of what uh, the magnitude of the value of these ecosystems is relative to other things that, that might be substituted for them. Uh, <clears throat> likewise, in the Puget Sound case. Um, more recently, we've in fact, uh, we've just come back from a, uh, uh, or on my way back on a, from a trip to uh, Bhutan. Uh, and you probably know that They've, uh, uh, they've said that their policy goal is gross national happiness, not gross national product. And so, uh, <clears throat> but they also recognize that, that natural capital accounting is an important part of that. And so we had a workshop there uh, last year and uh, just recently uh, finished an initial estimate of the value of ecosystem services in, um, in Bhutan <clears throat> and came up with some numbers um, uh, like this, <clears throat> that the value of their services is on the order of 15.5 billion per year, compared to a GDP of 3.5 billion per year. So this is a, you know, a country with not very many people, a lot of forests, and they're producing a lot of services, 
particularly for some of the downstream uh, population. Uh, so uh, of those services, uh, a little more than half accrued to people outside the country in terms of climate regulation and water supply and, and tourism and recreation. Um, but even inside the country, you know, so their GDP per capita is about 5,000 per year, but the contribution of ecosystem services was another 10,000, so more than, more than double uh, their, their, um, <coughs> their current uh, marketed services are being supplied by their, uh, their natural ecosystems. Just to give you a quick idea of how um, one goes about estimating the value of some of these services, um, in fact, the, the last couple of days I was in uh, Cambridge working with a, a group there, and Andrew Bomford and others, on this idea of what's the value of, co of uh, coastal ecosystems for storm protection. So this is one way of getting at that, that issue. This is um, Hurricane Katrina approaching the coast of Louisiana. This is the storm surge from Hurricane Katrina. It was about 18 to 20 feet when it hit <coughs> um, New Orleans. And uh, part of the reason that it was so high was because um, the Mississippi Delta here was uh, losing land at quite a rapid rate. Uh, partly because of the levying of the Mississippi River, so all the sediments that were uh, in the past uh, building the Mississippi Delta are now going off the edge of the continental shelf. There's a lot of oil and gas uh, extraction activity there, also uh, changing the hydrology in the system. So they've lost quite a lot of their uh, coastal wetlands. In fact, this is an even more dramatic picture, uh, going back 6,000 years. There's a you know, gradual accretion of the Delta until these human activities came in and there's been a, a rapid decline uh, over the last half decade, about 65 square kilometers per year. <clears throat> so um, we can collect data on you know, where the hurricanes have hit uh, over the, this historical period. So we've got good records of, uh, of hurricane tracks. Um, we can go into, you know, with GIS data and say, well, here's where the, the, the wetlands were in the swath. Here's where the infrastructure that was uh, you know, being protected by those wetlands was. Uh, and we know the, the uh, magnitude of the storms, so we can collect enough data to construct a fairly simple statistical relationship between you know, relative damages, wind speed, and wetland area. And from that, we can then estimate you know, how much the damages would decrease if we added another hectare of wetlands, or, or conversely, how much they'd go up if we, if we lost wetlands. So we can explain from that, there's still a lot of you know, other variables, and this is a complex relationship, but we can explain about 60% of the variation uh, from that, uh, the, that simple model. And we can use that then to, <coughs> to map the value of particular wetlands uh, around the coast of, of, uh, of America uh, for uh, protecting against storms. <coughs> and you can see that you know, the places that are high in value are the ones where those three variables intersect. There's you know, a high probability of hurricanes, uh, there's a, a lot of infrastructure to be protected, and there's a lot of wetlands to do the, do the protection. Quite a, quite a range of values, though, as well. You know, so uh, depending on how those, those things inter interact, and you can see that, um, uh, uh, but still the, the total value uh, is, quite, is quite large. And we estimated that if you add it all up, you get about $22.2 billion per year in just the storm protection services. And again, that's just one of you know, very many uh, uh, ecosystem services that those wetlands provide. Uh, they're also providing wet, uh, recreation and fishing benefits and, 
and, uh, <coughs> and etc. And we also know that um, when those wetlands are damaged, in this case, this is the, the BP uh, oil spill, uh, <coughs> that, that then those services are going to also be uh, quite, heavily, uh, quite heavily affected. What can we do to, uh, to sort of mitigate those damages and also to, to charge the, um, uh, the people who, who damage those systems? We also know that given the current state of the world, uh, that converting uh, existing intact systems into some alternative use uh, is now leading um, to a reduction in their total value. This is again from the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment uh, showing that you, know, you get large reductions in value <coughs> in doing those conversions, uh, particularly on marginal land. We did a, a study a few years ago um, with Andy Balmford from, from Cambridge and several other people to look at you know, what's the cost, ben the benefit cost of preserving our, our remaining natural capital assets. And we use the scenario of expanding uh, the current global reserve network to cover 15% of the terrestrial biosphere and 30% of the marine biosphere. That would cost about $45 billion a year. But the benefits, the net benefits, you know, the difference between the current protected state and what it might be converted to is about four to five billion. $45 trillion a year, so that uh, a benefit-cost ratio of 100 to 1 uh, for protecting our existing uh, natural capital assets, a very high benefit-cost ratio. So <clears throat> where do we go from here? I think we need to um, begin to develop tools to let us understand these relationships in a more complex way. How do we build more integrated <coughs> models of humans embedded in ecological systems? That's going to take uh, a range of different uh, kinds of approaches, uh, but I think we need you know, a, a multiplicity of approaches uh, to modeling at multiple scales and space and time, and, and we need to use this process of modeling uh, more to build consensus rather than just having experts do the modeling. How do you get all of the stakeholders involved in conceptualizing uh, the problem? Uh, so we've been <coughs> working on those kinds of approaches and, uh, and doing problem-based courses involving uh, stakeholders and trying to, to uh, understand how these systems work, acknowledging uncertainty and the values that the stakeholders bring for this problem, and the fact that all of these things are um, occurring in, as, uh, in an evolutionary process. Let's see. <clears throat> this is just one example. I'll run through a few of these. So we've been building uh, these kinds of models at the, uh, at the global scale that try to look at the interactions between ecosystem services and uh, the rest of the biosphere and hydrosphere and lithosphere and, uh, and how um, human well-being is actually influenced by changes in that sort of whole combination of, uh, of factors in a dynamic way. <clears throat> you can also do this at the, uh, at the regional scale. Uh, so there's a lot of work being done now in terms of modeling uh, whole landscapes and modeling them in a way that's, uh, that integrates all of those different factors together. More recently, we've been working on a, a platform that, that tries to do that in a way that allows you to, to um, adjust the, the spatial resolution and apply these kinds of models in a, in a very sort of cost-effective way uh, in order to get at you know, what are the, the, uh, the ecosystem services in any particular region around the globe uh, and apply that at multiple scales all the way from the global scale down to specific, uh, specific watersheds. So <clears throat> how am I doing on time here? 
Laura left. <laughs> she didn't like, oh, you're back there. <laughs> oh, there's the clock. Okay. Okay, I'll, I'll try to wrap it up and leave some time for questions. <clears throat> so, um, the one question that I've, I've always comes up is, well, okay, um, how can we stop economic growth and still have prosperity? And you've probably heard about uh, a couple of these reports. This is one from Tim Jackson uh, called Prosperity Without Growth. He was uh, part of the Sustainability Commission here in the UK. Peter Victor from Canada, uh, Managing Without Growth. Can you have an economy that's not growing <clears throat> that, that actually does provide a sustainable and desirable future? And in uh, Peter Victor's case, he built a, a, a little computer model of the um, Canadian economy and showed that, in fact, you could have a, a no-growth disaster. If we continue with our current policies and the economy stops growing, uh, things get much worse. Unemployment uh, increases and, and poverty increases and greenhouse gas emissions uh, do decline, but, but other things are bad. But if you implement <coughs> this set of policies, then you can have a, um, a stable, uh, uh, non-growing economy uh, that has much lower unemployment, much lower greenhouse gas emissions, much lower uh, poverty. You know, what do you have to do? All of the kinds of things I've been talking about. First of all, you have to measure success differently. Uh, you have to limit <coughs> material energy and, and waste consumption. You have to stay within planetary boundaries. You have to have prices that reflect uh, the true cost of, uh, of goods and services. You have to focus more on, uh, on public goods rather than status goods. You have to have more informative kinds of advertising, uh, <clears throat> more local, less global, reduced inequality. As we've said, you know, less work, more leisure. Who's, who's opposed to that? Uh, so that's uh, you know, but it does mean that people need to at least share the work uh, more quickly and uh, <clears throat> to engage in education uh, for life, not just for work. Um, <clears throat> how do we make this transition then to a a, uh, a different kind of economy. I think the first, one of the first steps is to be able to envision um, more completely what that different kind of uh, society would look like. And this whole uh, process of what's sometimes called scenario planning is a, is a, uh, a way to get us there. This is just a, a table of some of the plan scenario planning exercises that have been done. One very famous one on the top here is, in, is, uh, is done in South Africa in the post-apartheid period, um, <clears throat> where you know they came up with these four possible futures for the country: the ostrich scenario, where the you know white government stuck their head in the sand and just sort of ignored things, uh, to the flight of the flamingos, where the you know the, everybody sort of rises up together. It's had a very positive influence on how that transition occurred uh, to, uh, to to where they are today. Uh, there have been other scenario planning exercises. Uh, you know, the special report on mission scenarios is used by the IPCC in a lot of their, their work. The Millennium Ecosystem Assessment had a scenario planning uh, component to it as well. Uh, the Great Transition Initiative is another global exercise looking at you know, how can we create a future that, that does represent some of the things we're talking about. We've done something recently in New Zealand, and I'll talk about a couple of other examples. This Great Transition Initiative, I think, is worth worth looking at. <coughs> uh, they have these these four possible futures, and uh, and quite an elaborate uh, display of what those possible futures might look like. 
to have the market versus policy reform fortress world and great transition uh, futures and look at a whole range of different um, variables of uh, what those those futures might might look like. Quite different uh, estimates of GDP and and ultimately of quality of life going forward, where the great transition improves quality of life, uh, but still has a and has a lower GDP. Um, <clears throat> I think I'm getting close to the end of time, so I'm not going to spend too much time on some of these other examples. But we've done uh, uh, an exercise recently in the uh, the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, uh, trying to apply the same sort of thinking at a regional scale, uh, where we can look at uh, and often the way these things are done is just have two different axes, you know, um, one that uh, sort of is outside the control of the local region and one that's sort of inside the, the control, leading to four different possible scenarios. In this, in this case, what happens if uh, climate change is not handled well at the global scale uh, as opposed to what happens if uh, the local region gets their, their sort of uh, uh, runoff under control. <clears throat> and we can use... Um, modeling to help us understand the implications of those different scenarios as well. So we said, uh, this is the future of the, uh, a model of the future of the coral cover uh, on the Great Barrier Reef under those four different scenarios. And you can see that if uh, climate change continues, global warming and bleaching of coral, and <coughs> at the same time, the local region doesn't get its, its, uh, its act together to control runoff, then we're going to end up with you know, zero coral cover in the Great Barrier Reef by the year 20, whatever it is, 70 or so. Um, if in the best of both worlds, we have a, uh, if we can deal with climate change uh, globally and regionally, uh, then we can maintain uh, a fairly high degree of coral cover and the, the intermediate stages are there as well. <coughs> uh, this is just a, a map of those, those different conditions. The idea then is to present this out to the local, pop, the local population and get the get some feedback on what kind of world they really want to see. We can then plot out the implications of those different scenarios on this whole range of things, including the ecosystem services at the top, uh, but also some of the other characteristics contributing to, uh, to human well-being and, uh, and what sort of scenario gives the best patterns there. <clears throat> More recently, we've been involved in a, in a project of uh, the UK government their foresight project, looking at the implications of uh, changes in ecosystem services on mi migration patterns, <coughs> and this is the four uh, ESRI scenarios, and their implications for these different coastal uh, ecosystem services. You can see what a, what a big difference it makes, which future scenario uh, we, we decide to pursue. In New Zealand, they took the same sort of exercise and then took that back out to the population and asked them, uh, in this case, you know, where they thought New Zealand was currently, uh, where they thought <coughs> they wanted to go, and where they thought they were, uh, they were headed. And you can see there's quite a big difference there. That people really preferred one of the scenarios, uh, more of the sustainable scenario kind of thing. Uh, <coughs> and uh, they, they had a very different scenario in mind when you asked them where they thought they were headed. So how do we make that transition to the future that we really want. Um, you know that that's the theme now of the Rio Plus 20 meeting, is the future, the future we want. Uh, how do we establish that future? How do we build the, the scenario 
uh, <clears throat> and the vision for that future, and, and then use that to help us, to help guide us uh, toward getting there. <clears throat> this transition, um, I think, is going to require um, large, uh, a, a major redesign of our, of our system. Uh, how do we get to a sustainable quality of life? You know, third millennium economy. It's going to require a, a wide-scale conversion of our built capital assets, certainly. Uh, so we have to make the transition to um, renewable energy, uh, to wind and solar and more efficiency and et cetera, et cetera. But we also are going to need to fully utilize our human capital assets uh, to focus on fulfilling work, to redistribute uh, wealth and employment, uh, you know, ed quality, universal education, et cetera. Um, it's also going to require the rebuilding of our social capital um, you know, to reward significantly community involvement and participation and reducing the gap in income and wealth, uh, you know, uh, redistributing uh, uh, work time. And finally, the restoration of our natural capital, <coughs> of, our, of our climate system, uh, but also uh, of our marine systems and uh, uh, the and the rest of our natural capital assets. So, of course, there are always skeptics. And um, in this, this cartoon, you can see that <laughs> the guy in the back is asking, well, yeah, what if it's all a big hoax and we build this better world for nothing? Um, <clears throat> well, I think that's part of the challenge and part of the, uh, the way that we can better make the transition is to um, envision this better world and take a much more positive uh, uh, approach to it so that we can improve things that um, that we can break our addiction to this growth at all cost paradigm uh, by envisioning uh, uh, <clears throat> and sharing that vision of a more sustainable and desirable future so we can make things better it's not a matter of, of, uh, of sacrifice it's really a sacrifice not to make this transition to a a higher quality of life. Um, <clears throat> we have to uh, have a dialogue and communicate uh, what these solutions and what this new vision might be, and that's part of the reason for uh, for doing this. Of course, we're getting some some high-level participation and and uh, readership of our, our journal. This is the uh, the Prime Minister of Bhutan that we met with recently, and even some people closer to home have been have been reading our journal. I don't know if you, if you can see that that's. Uh, you guys might recognize this person. So, thank you very much.